The following audio is from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com. Well, this morning's message is called Redress. Now, that's kind of an interesting word. As I looked that up, I thought this is perfect for what we want to share this morning because to redress means to right, to correct, or to repair or remedy. Isn't that interesting, the word redress? doesn't mean that you get different clothes on. Um, There's an old saying that says, anyone can hold the helm when the sea is calm. Colin Powell says that leadership is solving problems. Um, A couple of weeks ago, uh, I volunteer at a ranch on Saturdays to help with kids who who, uh, are maybe at risk. And so we do equine therapy with them. And I had a young man on my horse out in the corral. And there was a, a pretty windy day. And that day was the opportunity for him to get on the horse, and I had a lead rope, but he had the reins, and he was riding bareback. And um, he was feeling pretty smug about himself because while I was leading the horse, he thought he was leading the horse. And, and, you know, we teach the kids that you need to know who's the leader. And so he was riding this horse, and, and I was leading it, and pretty soon I said, you feel pretty comfortable, right? And he said, oh, yeah, I got this, really. This is no problem at all. But we were trying to get him to learn how to ride bareback when the horse trots. And so we were trotting around, and he was just having great balance. And I, I said, do you want me to release the lead rope? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I let the lead rope go. He gave the horse a little kick, and <laughs> out the corral he went. And he was screaming, help, help, whoa, whoa. Well, you know, it goes back to this idea. Anyone can hold the helm when the sea is calm. Nehemiah had quite a stormy sea to resolve when you think about his situation. I mean, it wasn't just the fact that he had to go in and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. There were all kinds of problems to solve within the framework of the, of the, of the people because there had to be a reason when you go and see a wall that's been in disarray for over 100 years, there had to be some reasons internally why these walls had not gotten rebuilt, and he discovered that fairly soon in the process. Now, if you go with me to chapter 5, we're going to look at the obstacles that he needed to face and then how he solved them as a leader. And what I want you to think about this morning as you are walking through this passage with me is that are these the kinds of qualities that you possess as a leader wherever you might find yourself in that regard? It could be as a parent, as, as a husband, as a mom, as a person at work. But these are some great leadership qualities, qualities I think all of us should be really striving for. So let's start by reading chapter 5 and see the situation that Nehemiah walked into. Now, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and to stay alive, we must get grain. There was a famine in the land at the time. Verse 3, others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. So they're mortgaging their homes, and the landowners who were holding them on were their brothers. Frankly, they were their own people. Still others were saying, we have to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. 
Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we were, are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. See, the tradition was that if you couldn't pay your bills, if you had to mortgage your property, the only way that you could repay that was to sell your kids, essentially, or family members into a slavery situation in order to pay that debt back. You can imagine now why, beyond the fact that everybody's pretty narcissistic and protecting their own turf and trying to survive, but you've got all this disharmony within the framework of the, of the Jewish people. In verse 6, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury for your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. He really shut them down, didn't he? Verse 9, so I continued, what are you doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. They were violating Mosaic law. They were not to charge interest on those loans, and yet they were doing it. They were extorting their own brothers. Can you imagine walking into that situation? Well, here's the obstacle. There was disunity, obviously, among the people of Jerusalem. How in the world were they going to build a wall if everybody's complaining and, and, and nitpicking and, and being critical of one another and taking advantage of one another? As you know, I work with churches and pastors all over the country, and you, know, you wonder why churches aren't growing. They aren't, they aren't seeing lives transformed, and you, you get inside the inner workings of a church, and you realize that there's all kinds of disunity and, and bickering and fighting, and that may be possibly your family situation. See, here's the first principle that I think Nehemiah represents. Principle number one is this. Good leaders recognize that outward symptoms reflect inward causes. Now, that's not terribly difficult to think through, obviously. But how many times have you, can, have you seen people, if you will, fake it till they make it? You, you put on a happy face and, and you come to church from Sunday to Sunday or you see people that look like everything's okay on the outside. But as you get a little bit closer, you realize that there's a lot of disunity. There's a lot of disharmony going on. See, when you get on the inside, you begin to realize that there's a whole lot going on. And if we don't get to know people, if we don't become more intimate with one another, we don't find community in, in situations, we're never going to really know what the real deal is. So what he's recognized already is that there's obviously a problem. The wall not being built, that's a symptom. That's a symptom of a deeper issue. And how many times do we see people who are struggling in, uh, that, that we know, people who we're, we're connected with, where we see some symptoms and we try to deal with the symptom. Let's just build the wall. Well, wait a minute, time out. There's so much stuff going on beneath the surface. We've got to take care of that first. And so secondly, good leaders are willing to courageously address the inward symptoms. You see, there, there's all kinds of situations where there's what we call an elephant in the room. You know what I'm talking about? 
you know, I do a lot of counseling and you always find out that there's oftentimes in a dysfunctional environment where things aren't getting done, where, where there's not successes, there's usually something that's hidden there that's not being dealt with. That's, there's something in denial. Uh, there's an elephant in the room, if you will. And if we don't courageously address those elephants in the room, we're going to continue in that dysfunction. And so what this man did, Nehemiah, as a leader, is that he saw the elephant in the room. He realized, no, we got a problem here. The problem isn't the wall. The problem is you guys. You're not connected. You're not in unity. You're all about yourself. I remember uh, one church that I was consulting with, and I was sitting in a room with a room full of elders and their pastor. And uh, it was an interesting moment because I could feel all this tension in the room. And we were there as consultants to kind of figure out what was going on. And they were talking about there were some governance issues and things like that. But I could tell that all the elders were really mad at their pastor. They were really angry with him. And, and they all thought he was a control freak. But nobody said a word. And so we were sitting there for about an hour, and I just couldn't keep my mouth shut any longer. And I said, you know what, you elders, you're all a bunch of hypocrites. Well, that went over like a lead balloon. But I said, you know the reason why you're a bunch of hypocrites? Because I can tell that the elephant in the room is you are not happy with your pastor and nobody's talking about it. And then they finally said, you know what, you're right. See, there are elephants in our rooms. There's places in our lives where there are blind spots. When we live in denial, there may be something in your family or in your marriage or in your business or in, in churches that I see uh, all across the board where there's these elephants in the room. And unless we courageously and really go after it and confront it and deal with it, we're never really going to solve the problem. And that's what Nehemiah did. He got right in their faces and said, look, you guys, this is wrong. This is extortion. This is usury. You're really screwing your brothers. No wonder we can't build this wall. No wonder we got a problem here. And these guys stepped up to the plate, and they did, so, they did something about it. Well, there's some other issues that he had to face, other problems he had to solve. Let's go back down to the text again in, chapter, in verse 14. Moreover, from the 20th year of the king Artaxerxes of Judah, Excuse me, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. So you see what happened here. Nehemiah actually got a job. He actually became the governor, and 12 years, he never ate any of the governor's dessert food, okay? But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from their from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us for surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, oh my God, for all I have done for these people. Now, it sounds like he's really bragging here, but the point is this. What I see here in this particular obstacle, there was historically abusive leadership. Not only were they being abused by their brothers, but by the government. 
Does that sound familiar? Uh, let's move on. Okay. There were, there, were, there were taxes that they had to pay, and it was just a struggle to even survive. And it was a continual problem with the people of Israel. And what he decided to do, Nehemiah said, look, I'm going to be a servant of the people. I'm not going to take my allotment. I'm going to be generous. And so the leadership principle I see here is that good leaders understand that true leadership starts by being a servant. True leadership starts by being a servant. I don't know if you saw the recent uh, thing on, on, uh, in the news about the German bishop called the Bishop of Bling. The uh, bishop over, uh, Catholic bishop over in uh, Germany built a $42 million mansion for himself. And of course, the Pope really climbed all over him for that. And, uh, but it's really interesting how servant leadership is something that is not preached very often. Even I was just recently at a, at a conference called Exponential. I don't know if you know what that is, but Exponential is a, is a conference for all church planting pastors all over the United States. 6,000 pastors show up that are planting churches. And they always put on the stage the success stories, right? Isn't that what we do? We put the success stories on. These are, these are strong, vibrant, charismatic leaders who, who really have it together. And I, I, I listened to Rick Warren at this exponential conference. Some of you know who Rick Warren is. He's the pastor at Saddleback Church, wrote Purpose Driven Life. Rick got up one day and he said at the conference, he said, you know what? I think instead of having a leadership conference, we should have a servant conference sometime. And I thought, boy, amen to that. Here, here's a guy, Nehemiah, who had the right to take that money, had the right to allot that to himself as a leader, but he decided to be a model, a role model to the people and not exact that kind of tax and to not hoard what was coming to him. He demonstrated servant leadership. You see, friend, if you're a leader, if you're a dad here this morning, if you're a husband, if you're a pastor here, you're an elder here, You're the first person that should be serving. You're the first person that should be sacrificing. We're the first person that should be laying down our lives. Amen? Jesus came to serve. And here was a guy who represented the greatest leadership principle out there. The best leader is the greatest servant. Amen? That wasn't terribly strong, folks, but we'll move on. on. Let's go to chapter 6, okay? Chapter 6, we're going to see another obstacle. We've already seen it happen, but when, when word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, and Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. So there was still time. There was, the doors weren't complete. The walls were up, but the doors weren't in. So I'm carrying on a great project, or, but they were, they were scheming. It said, I'm sorry, let's go back to verse 2. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. And as far as Nehemiah was going to consider that, that plain of Ono was Ono. Okay? But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project, and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Each time he gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Samballot sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are rebuilding the wall. 
Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have every opportunity or even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now his report will get back to the king. So come, let us confer together. Well, this was all a bunch of baloney. It was all a bunch of nonsense. You see, what he was dealing with was these persistent threats and false accusations. And so in verse 8, he says, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your own head. Nehemiah responded. And here are the leadership principles that I see here. And leadership principle number four. Good leaders recognize that false accusations and persistent threats often come from people who are insecure and feel threatened. Right? What was the problem here? Sanballat and Tobiah were scared spitless that the people of Israel were going to become so strong and so overpowering that they were going to be attacked. And so out of their own fear and out of their own security, they tried to threaten and make false accusations in order to get Nehemiah out of his, quote, walls and come and see him and make, them, make himself vulnerable. And he wasn't going to fall for that nonsense. Now, here's the second leadership principle that I think is really important here on this particular issue and obstacle. Good leaders respond to threats with truth and greater resolve to keep the course. I remember when I was accused in my church about eight or nine years ago of being autocratic. Now, if you know anything about me, I am probably the least autocratic guy on the face of the earth. I'm pretty laid back. I love people. I love hanging out. But I had to fire one of my staff. And, and uh, I did it because uh, he was undermining our, our entire staff. He was talking behind our backs. He was actually spreading rumors. And he was making false accusations. And it was creating problems on our elder board. And I finally decided to just let him go. Well, I didn't say all that to the congregation because I didn't want to throw him under the bus. But there were all kinds of, of accusations toward me, and it was really difficult for me not to respond in a defensive posture, but it was really hard for me. And so what I needed to do is respond with truth. And what I mean by that is this. What I had to come to grips with is that, why are these people making these accusations? And are there, are, is there some truth to those accusations about me? And I had to, to get away before the Lord and kind of, kind of sit down and say, okay, God, you know, have I done something autocratically here? Is there something that I should have gone through? Was there a better process? That was a healthy thing for me to do. And I think that's a healthy thing for us as leaders to do, that when there are accusations made, that we take them seriously. We don't just brush them off and say, oh, they're just insecure. They're just making, they're just jealous or whatever. But that we sit down and we do an analysis and say, you know what, is this really true about me or not? And as I walk through all of that, I realize, no, that's not true about my character, but I can see how people may have misconstrued my actions. And so I went ahead and apologized for my actions, but I realized that, no, I'm not an autocratic person. And so what I'm saying here is the illustration here or the principle here is that good leaders respond to threats with truth, not only truth back to the people who are making those accusations, but truth in our own hearts. We can't live in denial. We can't just brush off those kinds of accusations because sometimes there's some reality and there's some truth in it as well. So good leaders respond to the threats with truth and what? Greater resolve to keep the course. 
You see what Nehemiah said, look, you guys, your accusations are a bunch of nonsense. And by the way, I've got a job to to do here, so stop distracting me. I need to get this wall done. And how many times has it been in our own lives where we get these accusations from people and there's these obstacles in our life and it's just so discouraging and we want to quit? But what I'm seeing here is a a resolve in Nehemiah's life that this is what God's called me to do and no matter what kind of accusations, no matter what kind of threats, I'm going to finish the job. And how many times have we been in situations where we quit? And so what I see here is a leader who just didn't quit. And he dealt with truth. So that's obstacle number three, persistent threats and false accusations. I don't care who you are as a leader, you're going to get them. Whether it's your kids, whether it's people who work for you, whether there's people in the church who do that to you as a pastor or as a leader, there are going to always be false accusations and persistent threats. That's the nature of leadership. Amen? Okay, good. All right. We're, we're there. We're there. You're still listening. All right, let's go down to verse 10 now and see one more issue that I see here as a leader. Verse 10, one day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of, we'll, we'll just go on, who was shut in, at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. This was all a sham. This was a guy, a member of his own community who was bought off to come in here and lie to Nehemiah that there was this threat, this impending threat. You better go hide, Nehemiah. You better get out of Dodge. Okay, verse 11. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Samballot had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. What I see here is something really tragic, but it's so typical. It's so typical as a leader. I call it this obstacle of disloyal manipulation. Disloyal manipulation. It's really interesting, isn't it, how Satan often uses somebody on the inside to bring the greatest threat. Isn't that true? It's often really scary. You know, it's so easy to see the enemy on the exterior, but it's those subtle things that are going on on the inside of a family or or a church or a community or some relationships where it's that inside person that becomes the cancer. And it's so difficult sometimes to see it because you want to trust them, right? You want, to, you want to believe the best in them, and so you try to and hope and believe that, you know, they're part of the team. They're, they're a good person. They're, 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 they're the kind of people that, you know, I can, I can believe in. And in reality, behind the scenes, they're really manipulating. They're really becoming disloyal, and that's why I had to fire that guy on my staff. And I did it, I put up with it for three years and didn't realize the kind of undermining influence he had in the church. See, this is the good leadership principle. Good leaders have a good sense who are truly loyal to their cause. Good leaders have, what I say, a good sense of who are truly loyal to their cause. You see, Nehemiah wasn't fooled one bit by this guy. 
He knew that there were people on the inside. He knew somehow that God was, or that Satan was going to use not only the exterior enemies, but some of the same people that you trust and you think are loyal are the ones that are going to be the ones that are going to discredit you and intimidate you. Nehemiah had an incredible ability to discern who was on their team and who wasn't. And that's what a good leader does. So let me share with you as we finish here in verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. Some argue that that wasn't exactly the right thing, but most scholars still believe that it was literally 52 days that took over 140 years to get done. DMI got it done in 52 days. When all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence. Why? Here's the kicker. Why? Because they realized that this work had been done by who? God. Good leaders realize that the only way to get the job done is to fully depend on God. Because the person that's going to get the credit is God and God alone. Amen? It's been interesting to watch. My wife and I and a couple other couples have been involved in getting the gospel mission together, which is a new rescue mission here in town. It's really exciting. There's going to, there, I've heard that there are 72 women who are really at present in Prescott living out of their cars or on the street. And they have no place to, to go to find a warm meal and a bed to sleep in. And this mission just opened up yesterday and there was already a lady who was coming to stay at the mission that night. But it's been really interesting to watch how God has put together a bunch of folks who gathered around this mission because this church that they bought had to be completely redone, almost gutted to some degree. All kinds of things needed to happen all at once. It was like the building of the walls. It was pretty cool. And all these people showed up, and it was really fun yesterday to see all the different rooms that were redecorated and done, and all of everything was put together, and it was all done just in a couple of weeks. It's just amazing. And, and, and the different situations, how God provided this thing and that thing and this thing, and I've seen the same thing at the ranch, and it's just so fun to just think back and say, you know what, who did it? There's no way to explain it except that God and God's people put it all together. And that's what I love about the story of Nehemiah. Not just the people of Israel, those people who, quote, were maybe followers of the Almighty God, but these were people outside of the influence of Almighty God, recognized that, you know what, something's going on there. It's because, and they've been intimidated and they're fearful because why? Because they know that something, God is doing something really cool there. And that's what I'd love to see about Cornerstone Church, wouldn't you? That the people of Prescott and Prescott Valley and all over this community will look at Cornerstone and say, you know what? This is a church, this is a church that has grown because there's been the dependence upon God and God alone. Amen? That's what it's about. And good leaders understand that. So let me ask you some questions before I close, which you know I always get to. First question is this. Is there an elephant in your room? Is there an elephant in your room? 
Is there something going on in your family, in your business, in the community, the relationships, your small group? I don't know what it looks like, but is there an elephant in the room? Is there something going on that, that you see that's beneath the surface and you're chicken to really address it? And it's time to really get it out in the open and talk about it. I find it fascinating that I go to elder board after elder board in my ministry as a consultant in local churches, and I see elders who are not talking with their pastors and their leaders, and they're not having honest, truthful discussions in the grace of God. And these are the men who are, and people who are supposed to be leading are supposed to be the most mature. And there's elephant upon elephant in a room, and nobody's talking about it. So are you addressing it? Is there an elephant in your room? Are you going to courageously start to confront it whether it's in your own life or in the life of somebody else. Secondly, here's the thing. All of us are leaders somewhere along the way. And one of our goals here at, at Cornerstone is to serve. We need a ton of servant leaders in this church. We need dads who are willing to sacrifice. We need, we need people who are willing to step up to the plate and really respond to when God's calling us to be a servant. We don't have to be on the platform. We don't have to be up front. We just need to be available for what God wants us to do. So dad, are you the first one to sacrifice? Mom, are you the first one to sacrifice? That's servant leadership. Are you a servant leader? Another question is this. Maybe you've been criticized lately. Maybe there's been rumors about you. Maybe there's been accusations. Maybe there's been even threats. I, I, I don't know. But are you sifting through it in a healthy way? Are you confronting it with truth? Are you confronting it with truth, but are you staying the course? Are you continuing to walk, following, being a follower of Jesus? And then finally, How in touch are you with those that are following you? Do you really know what they're feeling, what they're thinking? Are you just blindly leading people who really aren't with you? They're not on your team at all. They're, they're maybe doing what you're asking them to do, but they're not really with you. Do you know what I mean? See, a good leader really understands that. It might be you as a husband or as a dad. Are your kids on board? Is your wife really on board? Are they really there for you? It's something to think about. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for a guy like Nehemiah. I remember Pastor John saying last week, we can never be Nehemiah, and that's true, God. I, I'm just not as capable a leader as he was. But Lord, I just pray that, that all of us would take these principles that he models and just kind of Allow them to saturate our hearts this morning. Earlier, God, we, we tried to listen to what you had to say to us. And perhaps these were some of the things that you've been trying to tell us that have been said this morning for a long time. And so, Lord, I pray as we let these things kind of simmer and soak in and as we contemplate these truths that he's represented, that, God, you would do a work in our lives, that you would conform us to more like you, Transform us, Lord. Change us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.cornerstonechurch.org.
PrescottCornerstone.com.